0: The Old Testament lesson is Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none to who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The word of the Lord. Be, God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the title of uh, this sermon is The Return of the Fool. Uh, I've preached on the fool because he keeps showing up in the Bible. <laughs> There are different places where we're told that the fool says in his heart there is no God. Now, this got me thinking a little bit about the heart. What are we talking about when we refer to the heart? Are we talking about that physical organ? Uh, I don't think anybody confuses the physical organ with what we're referring to in a passage like this. Um, So what are we talking about? Well, there's an analogy. There's something about the heart that's central, something about the heart that's life sort of giving, it's as though uh, there's life being pumped throughout our bodies because our hearts are working. Um, we're told in Leviticus that uh, the life is in the blood, which is one of the reasons why the blood is poured out in, in offerings uh, in the Old Testament. But, uh, you know, there is an important proverb. It's found in uh, the fourth chapter of the book of Proverbs, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. There's something about what's going on, so to speak, in our hearts that's uh, really central to who we are. It uh, is a sense, uh, I think, in which we all kind of intuitively understand that the heart is where the true self is located. But what uh, is the true self? Have you given any thought to that? I think most folks just assume that when it comes to matters of the heart, we're talking about emotions, you know, kind of uh, you know, emojis <laughs> or something like that, you know, kind of this emotive character to our lives that really enriches our lives, uh, gives us a lot to feel, right, that's what we think of when we think of emotions, but uh, do we give ourselves over to our emotions, should we always trust them, are they always uh, right, you remember that song, Barbara Mandrell, you know, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? There's just this idea that we have that if it just feels right, it's got to be right. And there are a lot of people who kind of go through life uh, with that as their kind of rubric for understanding you know, what's good and what's not. Many of those people end up very unhappy in the end because they discover that their emotions can deceive them. In fact, that's one of the things that you can see right there in uh, the opening of our uh, service there in the responsive reading. Uh, We're we're told there in Ephesians chapter 4 that desires can be deceitful. In other words, your desires can lie to you. What do they do that kind of misleads you? Well, they uh, promise happiness if the desire that you are pursuing is uh, obtained. And then you find out, well, hey, it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. You've heard about all these folks that have won the lottery, right? Right? And how they die miserable and friendless and in poverty, <laughs> they thought that that, uh, that money would make them happy. They thought that you know hitting the jackpot getting millions of dollars would just you know be the end of all their troubles and then they discover that everybody has money trouble there 's the trouble that you have when you have no money, and then there 's the trouble you have when you have too much money <laughs> and there 's always a money problem in life, and a lot of uh, the sort of the difficulty that, that you discover when you have too much money is. Uh, There are a lot of people out there who are false friends and like being around when they can get something from you. And then they're gone when the money is gone. And you get what I'm getting at. There are a lot of things uh, in the course of our lives that we long for that if we were really to get them, they'd make us miserable. And God, in his mercy, keeps you poor (laughs) or keeps you from hitting the lottery. In other words, uh, there's often more wisdom at work in the course of our lives that's uh, at work not because we're exercising wisdom but because God is using his wisdom to guide us in ways that we can't fully appreciate. But since the emotions aren't the true self and our passions aren't the true self, what constitutes the true self? I think we're closer to uh, understanding the true self when we think about our affections. St. Augustine, Talked about how important it is to get your affections in the right order. To love things in the order that they should be loved. Think about all the things you can love. I mean, I love chunky monkey ice cream. I really do. I love my wife. You get the point. My wife knows that I love her more than chunky monkey ice cream. It's close. <laughs> and then, of course, there's God. We're to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That doesn't mean there's no love left for anybody else. It just means that because we love God the way we should, we can love our wives, or husbands the way we should. We can love our mothers and fathers the way we should. We can love chunky monkey ice cream appropriately. <laughs> you get the drift. You've got to have things in good order. But what that implies is that you can exercise judgment. Can you see what I'm getting at? You can exercise judgment to discern what's truly worth loving, and to what degree. So the heart, then, isn't just something that's motive in character. It's not merely the affections. There is a sense in which wisdom, reasoning, power, judgment also reside in the heart. Remember when Mary was told that she would uh, be the mother of the Messiah? She pondered these things in her heart. It's a remarkable way to put it, isn't it? She's considering this. She's valuing the promise. She's seeking to understand its significance. She's evaluating it. She's, she's discerning its value. And this is occurring in her heart, not just in her head. In fact, the separation from the head uh, and the heart is a problem. And it's a problem that really needs to be addressed. Uh, We have a tendency in our time to think about the head and the heart as completely different matters or separate faculties that don't have anything to do with each other. And because of that, we can kind of entertain mental models of reality in our heads and consider them, and that's fine. But really, there are some matters that call for us to exercise wisdom and uh, make informed choices. I remember years ago, to illustrate my point... I have a friend who's a minister in our denomination, and uh, his father was a professor of philosophy. Uh, I think he taught at Temple in Philadelphia. It had to be in Philadelphia. I can't remember if it's Temple or another school. But uh, the reason I know it's Philadelphia is because uh, his parents, his mother and his father, would att- attend a Tenth Presbyterian Church, which is an historic and important church in Philadelphia. Um, but uh, his father was an atheist. But he went to church because he wanted to make his wife happy. Nice to do. But uh, what he'd do is he'd take along with him some reading uh, so that when the preacher was getting into matters he didn't have much interest in, he could open up a book and spend his time, you know, considering great thoughts. Now, he rationalized that since he was taking along volumes of Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest mind our nation has ever produced, he could kind of reconcile himself to the fact that while he wasn't actually listening to the preacher, he was reach, uh, reading a preacher. <laughs> and uh, so he would you know, entertain great thoughts, but these thoughts didn't seem to descend into the heart. You see what I'm getting at? Wisdom is exercised in the heart because the heart is where we find the seat of judgment. What we affirm as being good and worth. Uh, loving, uh, that's an exercise of the of the intellect, but it's an exercise of the intellect in the heart. It calls for the whole self and the, the response of every part of ourselves when we affirm something to be both true and praiseworthy and good and, and something lovable and lovely. Now, uh, so that uh, is... Uh, some reflection on the heart. I haven't said everything there is to say about it, of course. But what we're talking about here is the fool. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I've often wondered what comes first. Is it practical atheism or the intellectual atheism that uh, comes first? Let me explain what I mean. Some people uh, assume that atheists are people who've kind of thought it all through and have arrived at the conclusion that there is no God and then live their lives that way. But is that really the way it works? Or are people practically atheists in the sense that they behave as if there is no God, find themselves confronted with the prospect that there is a God, and then don't want there to be a God, and then come up with arguments to sort of satisfy their desire for there not to be a God. (laughs) My own experience is the latter. Most often, that's the case. Uh, It's a chicken and the egg thing, because we can say, well, you know, you can start with a denial of of the truth that there is a God, and of course, that'll lead to certain consequences. But you can also begin with just behaving as though there is no God, and then work up reasons for there to be no God, because we have a conundrum that we face as human beings, and it's this. It's innate knowledge. Now, innate knowledge is a, 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 a matter that's, that might seem esoteric, philosophical in character, but it's not really all that hard to understand. Both Socrates and John Calvin maintain that there are just some things that you just know. You just know. You don't even have to, like, argue yourself into those things. You just know. For one, for one thing, we all know that there is a God. We just know it. We're made in the image of God, so we have that cheat sheet that you found in the back of your math book when you were in school, at least back in the, when I was in school, with all the answers. That's what we have. Because we're made in the image of God, we know what right and wrong is. We know that there is a God. In fact, let me take you to a passage of Scripture that demonstrates how it works, This is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Here we're told, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Isn't that a fascinating way to put it? It's because they know what's right, that they don't want something to be right, and they suppress it. In other words, we're not told that they're uninformed. It goes on to say, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We're without excuse. We know that there is a God, but we don't want there to be a God because we also know that we're sinners. We're sinners. We can think back upon many uh, times in our lives when we're honest with ourselves and say, you know what, there was a thing I should have done and I didn't do it. Or there was something I shouldn't have done and I did it. And that knowledge of the self, in light of the knowledge of God, puts us in a position that's very uncomfortable. And how we address that discomfort helps to explain a lot of crazy stuff. For example, virtue signaling. What's going on when a person is signaling virtue? Is it really that uh, they feel a need to let everybody know how righteous they are because it's just obvious that they're righteous? Well, if it's so obvious, you wouldn't need to signal it. You need to signal it because, well, for one thing, no one really believes it. and You're not really sure yourself. <laughs> so you're trying to demonstrate that you're better than you are. This is what self-righteousness is. It's a way of dealing with this, with this conundrum, this, this conflict that uh, we all feel or experience because we know that there is a God and we know we're not on good terms with him because we haven't done what's right. So this innate knowledge leads to... Uh, a kind of self-righteous approach to life where we're always trying to prove that we're really better than we know we are. We're trying to get other people to say, you're a good person, so that we can suppress this knowledge of our unrighteousness. You see how it works? This is the psychology of sin kind of eating away at us from the inside. Now, suppression is just simple denial. That's another approach. So if virtue signaling is a kind of self-righteousness in which you have like whitewashed tombs. You remember when Jesus criticized the Pharisees, he said, you know, you've got uh, a surface that looks great, but, you know, really if you dig beneath the surface, you find a lot of bones and, and uncleanness. In, in, and he was addressing this tendency that, that people uh, are hypocritical. It, it, I came across some, it was one of my favorite, one of my favorite uh, lines from La Rochefoucauld. Loshko is a moralist who is, uh, I think it's uh, 18th century. But the line is, um, hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. Hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. In other words, when a person is vicious, when a person is guilty of sin or of vice, he doesn't like just like, hey, that's me. What does he do? He pretends he's something he's not. And what does that demonstrate? That the person knows what's right. The person knows what's right. So the homage that vice pays to virtue is that vice can't be honest. Vice always has to engage in some kind of cover-up. We saw it in the Garden of Eden. You saw it in your own life. You've seen it with your kids. It's just all around us. It's the case with me too. I'm just like you. Now suppression. One of the ways that we can suppress the knowledge of the truth is through atheist, or sort of atheism, and sort of a an approach to the life of the mind in which we uh, engage in either in a sort of the the work of uh, suppressing the knowledge of God by accusing Him of unrighteousness. Have you ever noticed that? that atheists are really worked up about there not being a God? It's a fascinating thing to think about, isn't it? Uh, If there's no God, then what are you so worked up about? Uh, Why are you so angry? Well, I'm angry at God for being God, and that's why I don't believe in him. (laughs) That's kind of the logic of it. Um, And we see it in the garden when the tempter, the serpent, addresses Adam and Eve. What does he say? He accuses God of being untrustworthy. He says, essentially, that God is trying to mislead you. He's lying to you. The reason why you're not supposed to eat of the tree of, of, of the knowledge of good and evil is because you'll be like God, and he doesn't want that. He doesn't want any competition. That's what's really going on, so go ahead and eat. So there's some a, accusation that's uh, directed toward God And that accusation is intended to make God less authoritative, less attractive morally to us, but essentially to justify ourselves for not being what we know we should be. Those are, of course, the wrong ways to deal with this problem. I'm going to get to the right way uh, before I'm done. So hold, you know, just wait, hold on. Now, uh, what we see in this. In this psalm, is, there is a, uh, a shift in terms of the emphasis from the nature of the one who says there is no God to the interests of the people of God. Did you notice that? Uh, we see that occur uh, between verses 3 and 4. So in the first three verses, we see uh, the unworthiness of those who are, uh, uh, you know, people who deny the truth that there is a God there's a, a, a sense in which uh, they're noted as being corrupt and abominable without understanding. They've fallen away. They're corrupt. Then, in verse 4, we see the psalm direct our attention toward the interest of those who are righteous. Have, they, uh, have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread? In other words, God's people. This is, a, this is a, a matter that God has taken up. He wants to address this fact that that his people are suffering at the hands of those who uh, do not call upon God. And then he goes on to talk about uh, how they are in uh, terror when there is no terror. And, and there's a kind of interesting psychology that's at work in all of this. Um, there's a, a sense in which uh, this, as we see in this uh, passage, that the, that the wicked, because their own conscience makes them uh, uncomfortable, are prone to flee at the uh, appearance of authority. Um, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1 puts it this way, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Isn't that a remarkable mark- contrast? I remember... Uh, having an experience uh, that that brings this to mind, I I was asked by a friend to uh, look in on his son uh, while he and his wife were on vacation. Uh, The son didn't go with them on vacation because he was a a high school football star and um, had some games to play and so consequently stayed home. My job was to look in on him uh, occasionally and make sure he stayed out of trouble. And I remember it was a Friday night, and there had been a game. And I thought to myself, ah, I wonder what he's up to now. So I went over to the house, and sure enough, what I suspected was the case, house party. Football team, cheerleaders, they were all there. The entire house was just packed. And I remember going into the house, and it was as though I was Darth Vader and the Imperial March. (laughs) you know, just kind of began, and I just said, aha, and then it was amazing, people literally jumped out windows, every exit in the place just burst open as kids ran into the streets and jumped into their cars and spun out, you know, and just peeled out, tried to get away, I just walked through the house with a big smile on my face, aha, <laughs> aha, they fled, now, I'm not that big, I'm, you know, maybe, you know, six, uh, and I'm not six feet, I'm, I mean, five, 11 on a good day, and, uh, and these guys were bigger than me, but they were scared to death of me in that moment. Why? Because I was the personification of righteousness, a light shining in the darkness. And they just could not bear the light. They had to flee. They also knew that their parents would be upset if they learned about what was going on. But that's the way it works. Uh, they are in great terror where there is no terror. God scatters the bones of him who encamps against them, put to shame, for God has rejected him. You know, folks who are fleeing God, who uh, are guilty of the wickedness of consuming uh, the innocent uh, as they pursue their wicked schemes, these are people that God vindicates. Even though uh, these people don't want there to be a God, there is a God. God is on their do not call list, right? You know, when God addresses them, they put the phone on silence or they, you know, say this is uh, junk mail and uh, report it. (laughs) You get my drift. That's what people do. They reject uh, the Lord, uh, but the Lord attends to them because he cares about his people. You remember the episode where the Apostle Paul is... Uh, confronted by the Lord on the road to Damascus. And what's he on his way to do at that point in the story? He's on his way to Damascus to take believers into custody and to bring them back to Jerusalem to face trial. Remember that? When the Lord appears to him, he says to Paul, uh, and at this point Saul, why do you persecute me? Isn't that a fascinating statement? Why do you persecute me? Saul might have responded, well, I wasn't really going after you. <laughs> I was going after those people. Instead, he says, "Who are you, Lord?" And then the Lord says, "I am Jesus whom you are persecuting." Isn't it fascinating that the Lord takes it personally when his people are oppressed, when his people suffer injustice, the Lord takes it personally? It's not just the you know, it's just not just uh, sort of him coming to the rescue when it comes to people that he feels bad for. No, he, he takes it personally. And we see that in this, uh, in this psalm. God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you, puts them to shame, for God has rejected them. They think they've rejected God. Isn't that a remarkable thing to also take into consideration? They think that they're in the position to reject God. But what's demonstrated through their behavior is that God has rejected them. And the way the, the whole psalm ends is uh, with this, in verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now, I noted earlier that uh, even though... Uh, we can say there are people out there who formally reject God, who self-identify as atheists. Nevertheless, we all know what it's like to behave as though there is no God. And we can find ourselves tempted to address the problem just like other people do through virtue signaling or through suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But how are we supposed to go about it in the right way? How do we address the problem of the, you know, that we face when we both know that God is righteous and we're not? Well, here's the good news. This is the gospel, and I'm going to read a passage from 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When we fess up, when we step into the light, instead of just seeing our sins come to light, we actually see those sins cleansed. We actually see them covered because of the blood that Christ spilled on our behalf. We're afraid to step into the light because we're afraid of condemnation. But if we remain in the darkness, the condemnation remains. It's only by stepping into the light because the light and the forgiveness occupy the same space the cleansing and the light occupy the same space, that we are cleansed, that the problem is addressed. And it's because of the grace of God. And it doesn't happen because we're lying to ourselves or to God, but we're telling the truth to ourselves and to God that the work of Christ and his atoning sacrifice for us is applied to us. With those things in mind, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for helping us do what we couldn't do for ourselves. We're all in that spot. We all know that we will be, uh, will be in your presence uh, on that last day to give an account for ourselves. And we know, Lord, that we don't have much to say on our own behalf. We need the salvation that only you can give us. We pray, Lord, that today will be a day of salvation for us, that we will turn to you and confess our sins and trust you for uh, the atoning work that needs to be done on our behalf through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be honest with ourselves and honest with you. In Christ's name, amen.